Hey everyone, welcome to our 26th News Roundup podcast, this time going from March 14th to the 20th. It's been a while since I've done one of these. School keeps me pretty busy these days. It's been about two months since I've done one of these. Um, so this one will be shorter than usual. I wanted to at least get something in since it's been so long, but I couldn't get all the news in this week. Unfortunately, I just really don't have the time, but hopefully I could at least put out a short podcast like this um, every week. Um, And then, you know, when school slows down, then I could start putting out um, the normal length news podcast uh, weekly, God willing. So with that being said, this podcast is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop. Home of the Thules, the tactical handbook for unit leaders, available at megearco.com and Amazon as well. Check out the Freelancers, which is a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Conflict Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Also, check out Fortress International, which is a veteran-owned research and analysis firm based near Washington, D.C. I recently wrote my second article for them uh, last week, this time about the potential use of microwave weapons at the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. You guys should check it out. Um, Let me know what you think. Really appreciate it. Find them on Twitter and Instagram at Fortress underscore INT and their website at FortressLLC.org. Lastly, check out the LARP Bazaar, which is a tactical gear and apparel company started by myself and two other Marine veterans. We recently put out some Wubby hoodies in the experimental urban T-block camo from the late 90s. Check it out. Head over to the LARPBazaar.com. That's L-A-R-P-B-A-Z-A-A-R.com. And we'll get into the podcast. And we're going to start off with the COVID-19 numbers and news. I don't have the numbers for the beginning of the week. I kind of decided to do this last minute, so I wasn't able to get those in time. However, the week ended with 122 million cases, 2.71 million deaths, and 69 million recoveries worldwide. There are three countries still with over 5 million cases. The U.S. now at 29, and India and Brazil both with 11 million There are 21 countries with over 1 million cases, the aforementioned countries, Russia, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, Spain, Turkey, Germany, Colombia, Argentina, Mexico, Poland, Iran, Ukraine, South Africa, Indonesia, the Czech Republic, Peru, and the Netherlands in that order. There are still 18 countries with less than 1,000 cases. There are 65 confirmed cases of reinfection worldwide, 47 of those have recovered so far. Two have passed away and the rest are still active. The last confirmed case was reported on March 17th. There are 13,900, sorry, 13,097 suspected cases of reinfection worldwide, of which 37 of those have passed away. As of the 20th, over 410 million doses of any vaccine had been given in 132 countries, with Israel leading at roughly 49.1% of its population fully vaccinated. The U.S. was sitting at 12.3% fully vaccinated behind five other countries at the time. Record cases were reported three times in the Philippines, 
twice for Brazil and Chile, and once for Jordan, Cambodia, in the Indian state of Maharashtra. Record deaths were reported twice in Hungary and once for Brazil, Kenya, and Ukraine. Many nations and regional governments have suspended the use of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine after reports were released from Denmark and Norway that supposedly link the vaccine to the development of blood clots in a few of those that were vaccinated. One report from Norway claims that four patients suffered blood clots, of which one of those died. I should note it's not 100% confirmed um, that A, this vaccine does increase a risk for blood clots, and I'm not even sure it was confirmed that this person did die of that blood clot. I think it's probable, but I don't think that was confirmed, at least not from what I've seen. If you guys have heard something different, let me know. Those countries that have suspended use of the vaccine include the Netherlands, France, Spain, Portugal, Andorra, Germany, Italy, Ireland, Sweden, Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Slovenia, Cyprus, Kazakhstan, Indonesia, Thailand, Guinea-Bissau, and Lebanon. Thailand and Germany have since resumed the rollout of that particular vaccine. France has also resumed its rollout. However, it is limiting the vaccines used to those that are over the age of 55 after it was discovered that three of those four reported instances of blood clots were in patients younger than 55. On the 14th, AstraZeneca released a statement that says from the more than 19, I'm sorry, 17 million people have that have received their vaccine in the United Kingdom and the European Union, there's no evidence of an increased risk for developing blood clots. On the 15th, Estonian Prime Minister Kaja Kallis tested positive for the virus. At the time, she had a minor fever, but no other symptoms. Pakistani President Arif Alvi received his first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. The French Ministry of Health announced the discovery of a new variant in the commune of Lanyon in the country's Brittany Peninsula. The variant was found in a cluster of eight cases at a local hospital. According to the department, most of these cases were not detected by a PCR test. And uh, what that is, if you've gotten a COVID test, more than likely you've had a PCR test. That's the most common form of COVID-19 testing. It also wasn't confirmed whether this variant is more deadly than the mainline variant of COVID-19 or more transmissible or less transmissible or deadly. I really don't think they have that information yet. The Maldives authorized the Pfizer vaccine and the vaccine of Chinese state-owned company Sinopharm for emergency use. Brazil signed a deal with Pfizer to purchase 100 million doses of that company's vaccine. And Somalia received their first shipment of 300,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. This first shipment will go towards frontline workers, the elderly, and those with chronic health conditions. On the 16th, former Queen Sophia of Spain received her first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm sure you guys had no idea that Spain still had a monarchy. So there you go. Japanese Prime Minister Yoshidi Suga received his first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. This comes ahead of his planned visit to meet President Joe Biden in April. Moderna began its vaccine trial on children aged six months to 11 years of age. 
and it was announced that everyone in Ohio over the age of 16 will be eligible to receive a vaccine by March 29th. On the 17th, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I believe that's uh, only one dose vaccine. On the 18th, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan received his first dose of the Sinopharm vaccine. This was a day after the country received a donation of 500,000 doses of that vaccine from China. Khan also tested positive for the virus two days later, which means he likely contracted it just prior to vaccination. Sao Paulo Senator Sergio Olimpio Gomez died from the virus, becoming the third Brazilian senator to fall victim to COVID-19. Along with the 58-year-old senator, the two oldest senators in Brazil, aged 87 and 83, have also passed because of the virus. A survey by news portal Poder360 showed that at least 145 of the lower house's 513 members and 41 of the 81 senators in Brazil have contracted the virus. Additionally, 21 of the lower house's staffers have died the virus. On the 19th, the Food and Drug Administration of the Philippines approved Russia's Sputnik V vaccine for emergency use. This is the fourth vaccine to be granted approval in the country. Nepal granted emergency use for the Indian vaccine, Covavaxin, making it the third country to do so after India and Zimbabwe. French Prime Minister John Castet and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson both received their first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. 27-year-old nurse in the country of Georgia passed away shortly after receiving the AstraZeneca vaccine. The nurse went into anaphylactic shock after vaccination and authorities weren't immediately able to determine whether she has had adverse reactions to vaccines in the past. Georgian authorities are still investigating the cause of death, and it has not been determined that the vaccine is responsible. And polling surpassed 2 million confirmed cases. And on the 20th, Florida surpassed 2 million cases of the vaccine, becoming the third U.S. state to do so after California and Texas. And we will move on to Europe. In the United Kingdom, on the 16th, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that the United Kingdom will increase the cap on its nuclear arsenal from 180 to 260 warheads. While remaining committed to NATO, the country will also shift its foreign policy focus towards the Indo-Pacific. The nation's stockpile is currently believed to have around 195 warheads. This announcement coincides with the release of the Integrated Review of Foreign and Defense Policies, which sets the United Kingdom's defense objectives out to 2030. The review identifies Russia as the, quote, most acute threat to the UK. It also aims to set up a new counterterrorism operations center in the country. And it also states that the probability of a terrorist group launching a chemical, biological, or nuclear attack by 2030 is likely. Didn't specify where this attack could take place. In Ukraine, there is widespread speculation that the war in the Donbass region between Ukrainian and Russian-backed separatist forces could be ramping up again. The front line has been mostly stagnant for years at this point, coinciding with multiple ceasefires that have all failed to last. On the 14th, there were reports of shelling and gunfire in the Donetsk Oblast near the Donetsk airport and Orlivka. 
a daily report by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, recorded 70 ceasefire violations in Donetsk, up from 13 a day prior. That same report recorded 202 ceasefire violations in the Luhansk Oblast, up from 14 a day prior. For those who don't know, an oblast is uh, pretty much equivalent to a province. Donetsk and Luhansk have been operating as de facto nations, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, respectively, for almost seven years after they both declared independence in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Crimea. The two separatist oblasts, with the aid and direction of the Russian government, have been fighting to secure their separation from Ukraine since April 6, 2014, so we're coming up on seven years. On the 16th, a NNA News, which is a Russian pro-government news outlet, claimed that several units of separatist forces were put on combat alert along the front line. The Ukrainian Defense Ministry stated that units of, quote, the 1st and 2nd Army Corps of the operational group of the Russian occupation forces in the area were put on high combat alert. The 1st and 2nd Corps are names given to specific units of separatist forces by the Ukrainian government. They are not the official names given to those units by separatist commanders. On the same day, gunfire and explosions were reported west of the city of Herlivka, a Russian military Mi-8 helicopter briefly violated Ukrainian airspace in the Sumy Oblast, and the Russian Federal Security Service, FSB, detained a Russian man accused of working for the Ukrainian Special Services. And on the 20th, more shelling was reported on both sides of the front line near the outskirts of Donetsk. And moving on to Asia, North Korea on the 18th announced that it would break off diplomatic relations with Malaysia after a Malaysian court approved the extradition of a North Korean man to the U.S. The man will be sent to the U.S. to face money laundering charges. In response, Malaysia ordered all North Korean diplomats to leave the country in no more than 48 hours after the initial announcement from North Korea. In Burma, widespread protest and violence coinciding with them continued in the aftermath of a military coup that deposed State Councilor Aung San Suu Kyi, in early February. On the 14th, security forces responded to anti-coup protests by killing at least 54 protesters with small arms fire. Police officer was also killed during the clashes. The civilian vice president, Man Win Kang Than, said the civilian government will pass laws to give protesters the right to defend themselves and also called for a revolution to defeat the military government. This information came courtesy of the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, AAAP, which is an activist group. Separately, demonstrators in the city of Yangon attacked and set fire to 10 Chinese-run businesses, resulting in several injuries to Chinese nationals. Many protesters believe China is offering support to the military junta. The Chinese embassy urged Burmese authorities to, quote, stop all acts of violence, punish the perpetrators in accordance with the law and ensure the safety of life and property of Chinese companies and personnel, end quote. On the 15th, Burmese security forces shot and killed 20 protesters across the country, according to the AAPP. The group, via a Reuters article, claimed 103 protester deaths by the hands of security forces by this day. 
The ruling military government imposed martial law in parts of Yangon, the country's largest city. This clear attempt to stop widespread protest against the military coup utilized Section 144 of the Burmese Penal Code to ban gatherings of more than five people and set a daily curfew from 2000 to 0400. For those who don't know, that's 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. Martial law has clearly been largely ignored. On the 17th, nearly 200 civilians, most of them Catholic, were forced to flee their villages after fighting between the Burmese military and the Kachin Independence Army renewed in the area. The civilians took temporary shelter in a nearby church. They were led to by a priest. The fighting renewed after a, a truce excuse me, between the two belligerents that was enacted in December 2018 failed. The priest, Father Stefan Sukma Sudong, stated that Burmese troops refused to let the civilians take shelter in a camp for internally displaced persons, IDPs. Moving on to the Middle East and Afghanistan, on the 15th, an IED targeting a bus wounded 15 civilians in Kabul's Don Ibach area. In the city of Pul i Kumri, gunmen attacked a bus carrying lecturers from Baglan University. Two were killed and six were wounded. In Syria, small-scale clashes between Turkish forces and their proxies versus the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, continued. On the 13th, the Turkish Army and Turkish-backed Free Syrian Army, TFSA, hit the SDF-controlled villages of Samukwa, Tarafat, Mabrul, Al-Sad, Umhash, Kenetra, Sabadam, and Al-Hasiya. On the 16th, Iranian officials announced the death of two members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, in Derizor province, Syria. The two men, Moshtaba Basanji and Mehdi Bakhtiari, were killed by a landmine, reportedly. Basanji was reportedly assigned to the Imam Ali Special Forces Unit, which is a unit within the IRGC's Quds Force and photos show him wearing the rank of third lieutenant. No other information, however, was given on Bakhtiari. In Iraq, on the 15th, seven rockets targeted Balad Air Base, which houses American contractors that I believe are contracted to work on the Iraqi F-16 program. No damage was done to that base. No casualties were reported. Iraqi officials said the rockets were fired from a village inside the neighboring Diyala province. This follows a string of attacks on coalition forces and contractors in the country since President Joe Biden took office on January 20th this year. We will take a quick break and we will be back with Africa. All right, we're back with Africa in Libya on the 14th. Forces with the Libyan National Army, LNA, arrested Mohamed Malid Mohamed, a.k.a. Abu Omar, which is a known ISIS commander in the town of Ubari. This arrest preceded reports of likely U.S. airstrikes in Ubari, which is known to be home to various ISIS and Al-Qaeda cells. So it's a good win for counterterrorism forces. 
In Mali on the 17th, an attack on a military outpost in the city of Gao left at least 33 Malian soldiers dead and 14 others wounded. Around 100 attackers from an unknown group launched the assault with small arms, pickup trucks, and motorcycles. Malian forces claim to have killed 20 of these attackers. No group has claimed responsibility and no group has been blamed as of yet. In Niger, on the 16th, gunmen in the Tilaberi region ambushed a convoy returning from a market and then attacked a nearby village right after. They killed at least 58 people in both assaults. It's not known which group is responsible, but the Tilaberi area is plagued by violence in the wider Sahal region, which is mainly perpetrated by ISIS and Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. In the Democratic Republic of Congo on the 15th in Beni, the province of North Kivu, at least 12 civilians were killed in a mass stabbing attack. The Allied Democratic Forces, ADF, are believed to have carried out this attack. If you've been a listener of this podcast, you would recognize the ADF as the highly active Ugandan militia that has carried out a reign of terror in the eastern DRC for over 20 years. The UN has attributed more than 850 deaths to the group in the last year, and the U.S. has designated it as a terrorist group, claiming it has links to ISIS. In Ethiopia, the war between the federal government and its Tigray region still continues, and it has now entered its fourth month. On the 14th, according to the European External Program with Africa, EEPA, Ethiopian troops in the town of Wukro shot five civilians, killing three of them. Locals told the EEPA that these killings were retaliation for attacks on federal troops by Tigrayan forces. And fortunately, this is nothing new in Ethiopia. So not much has changed since the last time you guys listened to this podcast, unfortunately. In Tanzania, on the 17th, President John Magufuli passed away at the age of 61. His cause of death is unknown, but it was confirmed to be related to some sort of illness. It was widely reported, but never confirmed that Magufuli was recently hospitalized with COVID-19. He had been last seen in public on February 27th. Vice President Samia Sahulu took over after his passing, becoming the first female president of Tanzania. And we'll end it off here with the United States on the 15th. Two men were arrested and charged in connection with the death of U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick during the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Julian Ellie Cater of Pennsylvania and George Pierre Tineos of West Virginia allegedly worked together to spray police officers, including Officer Sicknick, with toxic chemicals. It was first widely reported that Officer Sicknick was beaten with a fire extinguisher, which later caused his death. I believe we even reported that same information here. However, those reports have confirmed to be false by authorities, and it's now believed toxic chemicals led to Sicknick's death. The two men were each charged with three counts of assault on a federal officer with a dangerous weapon and one count each of conspiracy to injure an officer, civil disorder, obstructing or impeding a official investigation, physical violence on restricted grounds, and violent entry and disorderly conduct. And that is all I got for you guys this week. Um, Again, sorry, it's kind of a... um, kind of a short podcast this week didn't 
really have a whole lot of time on my hands. School keeps me pretty busy, but it's been a couple months at this point and I wanted to get something out there. Um, again, it was kind of last minute when I decided to do this. I think I decided to do this podcast on Thursday or Friday. So, um, yeah, again, just wanted to get something out there, I guess. Um, hopefully I could do that. I could get something out, you know, whether it be a short podcast or not, um, once a week, even with the uh, school and everything I got going on. So just stay tuned for that. I'll keep you guys updated. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, and Pocket Cast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate, all one word. And yeah, that's all I got for you guys this week. I'll see you around.